the old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you once again to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. Now, there's perhaps no more perennial topic in America, American history than those clowns in Congress. <laughs> and uh, once again, those clowns in Congress are up to their usual circus. But it could be that this week's turn of events, um, both with the sort of slight 45-day delay on the shutdown and the defenestration of Kevin McCarthy as a House Speaker, have sort of like larger implications. To take this all up, I'm very happy to welcome, once again, a frequent guest, my nation colleague, Chris Lehman, who I'm happy to say, you know, is tasked with covering the clowns in Congress in Washington. Well, I don't have to, and the listeners don't have to, but he can certainly bring an informed perspective as to what's going on. So so maybe just like, just briefly, just give an overview. What the hell is going on? <laughs> well, it's difficult to know where to begin, but, you know, the seeds of... Kevin McCarthy's downfall were suitably planted in um, Kevin McCarthy's rise to the speakership, which is to say, listeners may remember that back in January, when he got the gavel, he had to suffer this sort of 15-vote hazing in his own caucus before he got the 218-vote majority behind him. And that involved buying off the hard-right forces around the Freedom Caucus and Matt Gates was one of the ringleaders of that revolt back then. And one of the key concessions he got from McCarthy was the restoration of the motion to vacate procedure, which Nancy Pelosi had previously killed off. And it basically allows any one member of Congress at any time to call a vote to see whether the, the speakership can be vacated. And that is what Matt Gates himself proceeded to do in in perhaps one of the least surprising developments. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. I think we'll, we'll file this under, like, why is that leopard eating my face? Yeah. So, it, you know, there are many layers of irony in, in this moment. One is, you know, when you put in to run a caucus in a chamber of Congress that is ideologically opposed to the idea of government, when you start actually doing stuff that looks like government, in this case, procuring a last minute continuing resolution to keep the government functioning in this budget showdown, you have an angry revolt on your hands. And McCarthy was unable to corral, you know, it turned out uh, pretty much Gates got exactly the number of votes he needed on the Republican side, eight votes in addition to the entire Democratic caucus. Um, voting in support of uh, the motion to vacate McCarthy's speakership. So that's sort of one irony is, you know, that Kevin McCarthy was sort of boxed in. He wanted a job where he got to wield power and, and make the big decisions. But the moment you actually do that in such a way that makes it look like government is functioning, you know, there there's hell to pay. So the, the real problem is, you know, not so much who holds the post of speaker on the GOP side, it's the caucus and they are just bound and determined. We know this from the, the past, you know, resignations of Paul Ryan and John Boehner, who also had caucuses with a very restive kind of tea party 
caucus mm. that was determined to provoke a budget shutdown. In each case, those speakers sidestepped the shutdown and it didn't get to a motion to vacate, but they were basically forced out. Uh, Banner was facing a revolt, as was Ryan, and they quite rationally decided, who needs this? <laughs> <laughs> the, the weird thing is that Kevin McCarthy was so single-mindedly focused on the job that he, I think, just failed to ask himself whether the game was worth the candle. And Yeah, way, I, I mean... You know, it's... it's Almost, if it weren't so farcical, you could say it's like a Greek tragedy. It's just someone being punished for his hubris. But it's all too, yeah, you know, ridiculous for that. Especially, it's now emerging, I think, McCarthy's play in the continuing resolution fight was to, he didn't actually think the Democrats would go for the final version of the CR. And that's why he very stupidly went on the Sunday talk shows on this past weekend and said, you know, basically the Democrats wanted a shutdown. The only way he was going to broker a deal to save his speakership was to peel off some moderate Democrats to, you know, support him. And in that moment, he just kissed all of them off. <laughs> so like, you know, the one thing that speakers are supposed to be good at, and what I will, I'm not generally a Nancy Pelosi fan, but she was very skilled at being a whip, of, of counting the votes you actually have making sure she got, you know, the, the signature legis legislation through that she needed to. You know, she had an even narrower majority her last time as speaker than McCarthy did, and she got it to work. So that is actually a very clarifying comparison to make because Nancy Pelosi did manage to govern with, a you know, like, as you say, a narrower majority. And, you know, it's not like the Democrats are a unified party. I mean, this is, you know, like yeah, historically the most <laughs> narrative template in Washington is Democrats in disarray. Right. So maybe yeah, yeah, well, nothing well, else. This episode can retire that hoary. <laughs> well, well, but the Democrats in disarray, I mean, like does reflect the fact that the Democrats are a heterogeneous party that, you know, like is a coalition of many different groups and ideologically diverse, you know, like between the sort of moderate centrist wing and, uh, and now has a, a real social democratic wing. But still, I think on the democratic side, despite all the diversity and difference and uh, ideological disagreement, everybody's pretty committed to governing. And therefore, if you have a caucus where everyone you know, realizes we have to govern, we have to like come to some point, and you have someone like Nancy Pelosi, who I do think deserves credit as someone who like you know knew how to find that right. that point where everyone can rally around and knew how to count before she took a vote, then you can function. Whereas I mean, the Republicans are in a complete contrast, and it, the the whole thing highlights like just you know how incapable of governing the Republicans are. It's not just that, you know, they're, they're factionalized. Democrats are also factionalized. It's that, you know, it's not a party that's committed to governing. And, and that sort of brings it, you know, maybe the second question, the roots of all this. And I'll link to this in the show notes, but the great political scientist, Tedda Scotchball, has an interview in Political where, you know, she traces this back to the Tea Party. And there's a sort of meme that's going around from this book, from the Tea Party era of the, the Young Guns, which features, I believe it's like Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, and Eric Cantor, you right. know, all of whom, you know, rode in as the Young Guns, the future of the Republican Party, and all of whom have been uh, unceremoniously defenestrated. Yeah. 
Though, you know, the, the one thing I will say, two of the people on the cover of that book did go on to be Speaker of the House, Ryan yes, and yes. McCarthy. So, you know, the, the book in some ways was not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, Except, this is right that, that this was the future because it was also the future. Right. This is a very truncated, chaotic future. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, uh, you know, Sam Rayburn's here <laughs> or, or no, Kip O'Neill's. Or, Cannons or whoever. <laughs> right. No, it's, yeah. it's definitely a, a new cool. generation of leadership. And I think the Scotch Bowl analysis is, is largely right. But I would amend it to say it goes further back to Newt yeah. Gingrich. Well, I, I, I should yeah. clarify. Yeah, I mean, Scotchwell's analysis is that this is like, oh, the Tea Party. It's the Tea Party right. coming home to roost. Uh, you know, once you have the extremists of the Tea Party coming in, uh, you know, like, that makes it impossible for the Republicans to govern. But as you were saying, you know, I mean, that analysis, which we can agree on, that the Tea Party was a hu- hugely important inflection point, I can we can go deeper. So, yeah, I know. Gingrich, you know, pioneered the, the shutdown tactic, first of all, which is what generated this whole crisis for McCarthy. And, you know, Gingrich was also a fiercely anti-government enforcer of ideological discipline within the Republican mm. caucus. And so, you know, he helped engineer some of the early leadership purges of moderates that went on to create the conditions in which the, the Tea Party could thrive. And, you know, the, but it is absolutely true that, you know, both Boehner and Ryan were faced with trying to, you know, do what Pelosi did successfully do on the Democratic side, you know, keep people in line, keep, you know, people focused on achievable legislative goals, you know, make trade-offs where trade-offs were possible. And it is true that, you know, as, as we have seen, you know, the, McCarthy episode is kind of the limit case of of right-wing chaos in Congress. You know, McCarthy did everything to appease the Freedom Caucus hard-right faction. You know, he not only gave them the motion to vacate, he gave them all kinds of committee chairs and rule concessions. You know, he gave and he gave, you know, during the, the struggle to get him elected speaker, Matt Gates actually joked you know, Kevin McCarthy has given so much away, I can't get any more. There are no more <laughs> concessions to be got from him. And it, he wasn't wrong. Mm-hmm. And yet, this is the the key point. It did not matter. You know, he, he was negotiating with terrorists, really. And, you know, there, yeah. there was no rational calculus to proceed on as, you know, McCarthy went on to discover. You just, you give them everything and they will still, you know, cut off your head. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the, to be clear, like this is a caucus where, like, just on these sort of procedural governance issues, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a moderate. Yeah, uh, it's absolutely know, true. Like, she, she is like you know the one that will work with leadership and make yeah. concessions, and and she is being you know touted or criticized you know, within the caucus as a sellout. Yeah, right. That's a compromiser. Yeah, quite something to see her and Lauren Boebert go at it earlier and now her and Gates. It is, yeah. it, you know, if if you can sort of bracket what the real stakes are, and they are, you know, as you noted, you know, we just have a 45-day mm-hmm. reprieve to the next shutdown battle. Um, and whoever it is who moves into McCarthy's uh, position will not have, you know, a relationship with the White House, will not have much of a footing in this chaotic caucus to get any sort of deal done. So we're looking at, you know, a very 
real prospect of a of another shutdown in November. Um, also, the continuing resolution did not include funding for the U- Ukraine effort to resist the Putin invasion, and that is a huge issue that is now you know just totally thrown up into chaos. So. Yeah, yeah, no, and actually, that, that's worth um, pursuing. It's something we talked about, like, sort of off air, but I, I mean, McCarthy basically seems to have had some sort of, like, handshake deal. Handshake with, deal, yeah. Yeah, with the Democrats that, you know, like, we'll have the continuing resolution without the Ukraine money, and then we'll bring a vote on the Ukraine, and, and then there's enough Republicans, and all the Democrats, basically, right. will vote for it. And then, so, so the continuing resolution, you know, would have basically been just maintaining the, the status quo. A defa- with actually like a little bit more money for disaster relief. So, right. so it was actually like not a bad deal for the Democrats as it right. was. But now the Republicans have thrown this, you know, like by getting rid of McCarthy, there is no handshake deal right. and Ukraine is in doubt. And this, you know, I think we can have a little bit of discussion as to what's happening with the Republicans on this front, because there's you know a lot of puzzlement in American society that the Republicans are the ones that are, you know, don't want to resist the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The and there is a kind of liberal school of analysis that you know is basically Putin's puppets, right? <laughs> These people are all right, in the which I think is like like not a helpful analysis, right? But it seems to me that like what we're seeing, if you look at the larger geopolitics of the Republican Party of the Republican right, is that you know they want to disengage from Europe, like let the Europeans settle their own mess. You know, it, it, it would, you know what's going on there doesn't affect us. But they want American security forces and American foreign policy to be concerned with what's happening south of the border, with the Mexican border. And we're yeah. seeing calls from you know presidential candidates for like you know American military intervention yeah. invading Mexico, but also China, right? Like that we have to ramp up against the war on China. Right. Now, this like <laughs> mix of policies. Yeah, it's a familiar one. This, this is ninety eight. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, no, but this is like the you know the conservative foreign policy before the Cold War. This mm-hmm. is the, the foreign policy of Charles Lindbergh, which was mistakenly called at the time isolationist. But if right. you look at who the isolationists were, many of them, you know, very much supported the Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere, wanted the U.S. to be a dominant force, and they wanted to stay out of Europe precisely as a way of making a deal. They, their right. idea was we're going to make a deal with Hitler. You get to be overlord mm-hmm. of Europe. We get to be they overlord of the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. And they were also very concerned with Asia. They want, worried mm-hmm. about the yellow peril, as they called it. And they wanted, you know, American military might to be focused on Europe. And back then, like, you know, the historian Arthur Schlesinger used to say, you know, these aren't isolationists. They're Asia-lationists. They, yeah, they, right. they, right. Their focus was on, you know, the Western Hemisphere and Asia. So this policy mix... The Charles Lindbergh policy mix has returned. Uh, you know, yeah. this is not your father's uh, Republican Party, but it is your grandfather's Republican Party. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, and it's it's interesting too because it's of a piece with you know Tommy Tuberville holding up these military mm-hmm. promotions. It's a very I I forget who it was now, but someone who I was interviewing during the shutdown crisis and discussing, you know, the prospect of Ukraine getting left to twist in the wind was saying this this is the most important shift in Republican politics is this turn away from aggress- an aggressive sort of interventionist model of foreign policy. And it's, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's much more in the American first vein. You know, the old isolationists, um, 
you know, they did not fare well in the wake of World War II for good reason, <laughs> but yeah. they uh, they did have, you know, what was a partially, you know, sustainable critique of m- military adventurism. And, yeah. And my worry is, you know, the the cor- the insane chorus to invade Mexico suggests that, yeah, these are not isolationists, clearly. <laughs> no, no, absolutely, absolutely not. I mean, I mean, there's a... Well, if one thinks about the Republican Party uh, taxonomy, there is, like, two sort of wings. There's the people, the America First people, the Charles Lindbergh people, right. who aren't really anti-interventionists. They want intervention, but right. they, want they want it... Their kind of intervention. Their right. kind of... Yeah, yeah. Let's invade the countries to the south of the border and to the west of California. And But, but there's also... You know, like a, a tradition of you know genuine critique of military interventionism of the sort of you know one associated with the name of Robert Taft. Right. You know, who was certainly a very conservative person, very anti-union. Uh, you know, not our politics, but but I would insist a very thoughtful critic of American foreign policy. Many of the critiques that he made of the national security state in the 40s and 50s of NATO, I think, are still very resonant. And so, you know, there's these two wings of the Republican Party that are doubtful of war. I have to say, like, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of Robert Tafts around. <laughs> no, no, and yeah, let's not forget, too, that the whole reason that Donald Trump basically accused former Chief of Staff Milley of treason was Milley was sending a reassurance in the wake of January 6th to China that we're not going to evade, invade you. <laughs> yes. there, yeah, there's a lot going on there. And it's, it's yeah, I, I think it's surfaced as a byproduct of this whole fight over the continuing resolution and it's it's claimed McCarthy's speakership. So yeah, it's very it's very difficult to kind of game out what happens next for Republicans yeah. in Congress. Oh yeah, no, I know well, I mean if like any one member of Congress can bring a vote and yeah. you have such a narrow minority. I mean this is like I mean, you know, we're sort of unfortunate as journalists in the prediction game. But I've, I've sort of learned that you can't really do it because this is actually chaos theory. This is like a situation <laughs> exactly. where like one butterfly can like cause a hurricane, right? Yeah. I would not go so far as to call Matt Gates a butterfly. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> In terms of insect life. That yeah, that's right. There are one scorpion can cause <laughs> exactly, uh, right. a hurricane. So, I, I, I mean... Uh, the only thing one can predict is that we can't predict anything except chaos. Right. There's a greater likelihood of a shutdown, and there's a like a huge problem of governance. That you know, yeah, I'm not a favorite, a fan of consensus, but one can kind of see that this, you know, like there's no even minimum foreign policy consensus. So yeah. how are American allies going to rely on anything? Like, yeah, you know, like it is a real, yeah. I mean, these are the real serious stakes, and you know, I'm with you in some ways. Like, I, I kind of wish the Democrats had had not on the same scale and certainly not with the same agenda, but had had some of the leadership purges that the Republicans Mm -hmm. have had. You need young leadership. Mm -hmm. There's a definite um, gerontocracy problem on Mm -hmm. uh, the Democratic side of things. And, you know, I would be lying if I said, well, you know, I, I thought to myself at the time, like, Wow, like even Paul Ryan is not acceptable to, to the Republicans in Congress. That's, you know, it's crazy, but it's it's a little, you know. Actually, Perry Bacon in the Washington Post had a good column today, kind of making the devil's advocate 
argument that, you know, it's healthy to get new leadership on board somehow. And it's, yeah. it's inherently messy, you know, and who knows? I mean, this is, I, I think Perry would agree that <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. not what Democrats want, but, but it is, it is worth, you know, mm-hmm. putting a pin in that kind of devil's advocate argument that, you know, the House is supposed to be the most democratic chamber of governance, mm-hmm. and, you know, it is healthy to have dissent. And Well, I mean, I think that this sort of chaos and sort of empowerment of this more extremist wing does give your party a lot of energy. And right. this does kind of explain why, you know, despite everything, like, like, I mean, I think a lot of Democrats are always puzzled, like, you know, like all the things that Republicans do, like, why are they still like, you know, they're still, popular, they're still well positioned. That, yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah, the point yeah, of Perry's column yeah. today is like, yeah, yeah. yeah Within yeah. Washington, you look at all this and you think, you know, the inmates have taken over the asylum or yeah. whatever. And yet, if you go over to the polling, like, you know, Trump is very much a viable candidate. Mm-hmm. You know, Republicans are have, have gotten a really dramatic advantage in managing the economy, which mm-hmm. makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, given, yeah. You know, their track record, on particularly on jobs. But mm-hmm. Somehow, you know, all of this chaos does not register as yeah. disqualifying. Um, no, no, no. Well, I mean, well, well, just the thing in terms of pure political things, the thing is that this chaos energizes like the base. It, it gets a real. It's true, active, right? Yeah, like the, you, you, they feel like there's a stake in like party leadership that they could um, uh, mm-hmm. take power. And you get a lot of people uh, that get very vested uh, in it. Whereas, you know, the Democrats, you know, the sort of steady it's as you go. You know, uh, it's basically it's a, like we give the keys over to Nancy Pelosi and Steny mm-hmm. Hoyer. Yeah. And, you know, they're, you know, ex- experienced and Joe Biden. professionals and yeah. Joe Biden. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's just tamping down enthusiasm and energy. Yeah. And yeah, that, there's yeah. a sort of political problem. I'm sort of reminded yeah. that, you know, Gore Vidal, I'm going gonna, gonna to mangle it, but Gore Vidal had this line about 30 or 40 years ago where he says, you know, the paradox of America is that the the liberal party is senile, whereas the uh, conservative party is puerile. Uh, that, you know, one would not expect the liberal party to be like, you yeah. know, like stuck in the mud and the, the, the conservative party to be like full of, you know, like angry children throwing tantrums. But, right. you know, America is a land of miracles. We have achieved those. <laughs> I know. No, it is. It is absolutely true. And yeah, my, you know, the, the sort of paradox I, I keep returning to in my own reporting is, you know, somewhat related that Republican leadership is afraid of its base and the Democratic leadership mm-hmm. hates its base. Um, yeah, no, no, that's exactly the dynamic. Yeah. And that that is um, uh, why uh, things were... Um, the, the sort of the deep structural thing that you know keeps the Republicans viable as they become more extreme. Yeah, uh, no, it is it is a really interesting dynamic, and yeah. it's it's you know it's something I'm very mindful of working here in D.C., which is you know so beholden to the idea that politics should be administered by a yeah. professional class, and the you know the public should be several. Re- steps removed <laughs> yeah yeah no no the, 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 that's absolutely right yeah so we I, I think we've covered a lot like a lot of ground there's uh, there'll be much more to say in the coming weeks but if to listeners all i can say is 
you know, the clowns in Congress, they continue to be up to their buffoonery, but in, in ways that are like not just entertainingly clownish as one yeah, was like, uh, but with serious can, repercussions. You could call them killer clowns. <laughs> killer clowns. Yeah, yeah, Stephen King clowns. <laughs> so again, I want to thank Chris for uh, being on the program. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to you.